Chapter six of Celebrated Crimes, Volume six, Part one, Joan of Naples by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. The spectacle of this frightful punishment did not satisfy the revenge of Charles of Durazzo. Seconded by the chief justice, he daily brought about fresh executions, till André's death came to be no more than a pretext for the legal murder of all who opposed his projects. But Louis of Tarentum, who had won Joan's heart, and was eagerly trying to get the necessary dispensation for legalizing the marriage, from this time forward took as a personal insult every act of the High Court of Justice which was performed against his will and against the Queen's prerogative. He armed all his adherents, increasing their number by all the adventurers he could get together, and so put on foot a strong enough force to support his own party and resist his cousin. Naples was thus split up into hostile camps, ready to come to blows on the smallest pretext, whose daily skirmishes, moreover, were always followed by some scene of pillage or death. But Louis had need of money both to pay his mercenaries and to hold his own against the Duke of Durazzo and his own brother Robert, and one day he discovered that the Queen's coffers were empty. Joan was wretched and desperate, and her lover, though generous and brave, and anxious to reassure her so far as he could, did not very clearly see how to extricate himself from such a difficult situation. But his mother Catherine, whose ambition was satisfied in seeing one of her sons, no matter which, attained to the throne of Naples, came unexpectedly to their aid, promising solemnly that it would only take her a few days to be able to lay at her niece's feet a treasure richer than anything she had ever dreamed of, queen as she was. The empress then took half her son's troops, made for St. Agatha, and besieged the fortress where Charles and Bertrand of Artois had taken refuge when they fled from justice. The old count, astonished at the sight of this woman, who had been the very soul of the conspiracy and not in the least understanding her arrival as an enemy, sent out to ask the intention of this display of military force, to which Catherine replied in words which we translate literally. "'My friends, tell Charles, our faithful friend, that we desire to speak with him privately and alone concerning a matter equally interesting to us both, and he is not to be alarmed at our arriving in the guise of an enemy, for this we have done designedly, as we shall explain in the course of our interview. We know he is confined to bed by the gout, and therefore feel no surprise at his not coming out to meet us. Have the goodness to salute him on our part and reassure him, telling him that we desire to come in, if such is his good pleasure, with our intimate counsellor, Nicholas Acciajuli, and ten soldiers only, to speak with him concerning an important matter that cannot be entrusted to go-betweens. Entirely reassured by these frank, friendly explanations, Charles of Artois sent out his son Bertrand to the Empress to receive her with the respect due to her rank and high position at the court of Naples. Catherine went promptly to the castle with many signs of joy, and inquiring after the Count's health and expressing her affection as soon as they were alone, she mysteriously lowered her voice and explained that the object of her visit was to consult a man of tried experience on the affairs of Naples and to beg his active cooperation in the Queen's favor. As, however, she was not pressed for time, she could wait at St. Agatha for the Count's recovery to hear his views and tell him of the march of events since he left the court. She succeeded so well in gaining the old man's confidence and banishing his suspicions that he begged her to honor them with her presence as long as she was able, and little by little received all her men within the walls. This was what Catherine was waiting for. On the very day when her army was installed at St. Agatha, she suddenly entered the Count's room, followed by four soldiers, and seizing the old man by the throat, exclaimed wrathfully, "'Miserable traitor! You will not escape from our hands before you have received the punishment you deserve. In the meanwhile—' Show me where your treasure is hidden. 
if you would not have me throw your body out to feed the crows that are swooping around these dungeons the count half choking the dagger at his breast did not even attempt to call for help he fell on his knees begging the empress to save at least the life of his son who was not yet well from the terrible attack of melancholia that had shaken his reason ever since the catastrophe then he painfully dragged himself to the place where he had hidden his treasure and pointing with his finger cried take all take my life but spare my son catherine could not contain herself for joy when she saw spread out at her feet exquisite and incredibly valuable cups caskets of pearls diamonds and rubies of marvellous value coffers full of gold ingots and all the wonders of asia that surpassed the wildest imagination but when the old man trembling begged for the liberty of his son as the price of his fortune and his own life the empress resumed her cold pitiless manner and harshly replied i have already given orders for your son to be brought here but prepare for an eternal farewell for he is to be taken to the fortress at melfi and you in all probability will end your days beneath the castle of st agatha the grief of the poor count at this violent separation was so great that a few days later he was found dead in his dungeon his lips covered with a bloody froth his hands gnawed in despair bertrand did not long survive him he actually lost his reason when he heard of his father's death and hanged himself on the prison grating thus did the murderers of andre destroy one another like venomous animals shut up in the same cage catherine of tarentum carrying off the treasure she had so gained arrived at the court of naples proud of her triumph and contemplating vast schemes but new troubles had come about in her absence charles of durazzo for the last time desiring the queen to give him the duchy of calabria a title which had always belonged to the heir presumptive and angered by her refusal had written to louis of hungary inviting him to take possession of the kingdom and promising to help in the enterprise with all his own forces and to give up the principal authors of his brother's death who till now had escaped justice the king of hungary eagerly accepted these offers and got ready an army to avenge andre's death and proceed to the conquest of naples the tears of his mother elizabeth and the advice of friar robert the old minister who had fled to buddha confirmed him in his projects of vengeance he had already lodged a bitter complaint at the court of avignon that while the inferior assassins had been punished she who was above all others guilty had been shamefully let off scot-free and though still stained with her husband's blood continued to live a life of debauchery and adultery the pope replied soothingly that so far as it depended upon him he would not be found slow to give satisfaction to a lawful grievance but the accusation ought to be properly formulated and supported by proof that no doubt joan's conduct during and after her husband's death was blamable but his majesty must consider that the church of rome which before all things seeks truth and justice always proceeds with the utmost circumspection and in so grave a matter more especially must not judge by appearances only joan frightened by the preparations for war sent ambassadors to the florentine republic to assert her innocence of the crime imputed to her by public opinion and did not hesitate to send excuses even to the hungarian court but andre's brother replied in a letter laconic and threatening your former disorderly life the arrogation to yourself of exclusive power your neglect to punish your husband's murderers your marriage to another husband moreover your own excuses are all sufficient proofs that you were an accomplice in the murder catherine would not be put out of heart by the king of hungary's threats and looking at the position of the queen and her son with a coolness that was never deceived she was convinced that there was no other means of safety except a reconciliation with charles their mortal foe 
which could only be brought about by giving him all he wanted. It was one of two things. Either he would help them to repulse the king of Hungary, and later on they would pay the cost when the dangers were less pressing, or he would be beaten himself, and thus they would at least have the pleasure of drawing him down with them in their own destruction. The agreement was made in the gardens of Castel Nuovo, whither Charles had repaired on the invitation of the queen and her aunt. To her cousin of Durazzo, Joan accorded the title so much desired of Duke of Calabria, and Charles, feeling that he was hereby made heir to the kingdom, marched at once on Aquila, which town already was flying a la Hungarian colors. The wretched man did not foresee that he was going straight to his destruction. When the Empress of Constantinople saw this man, whom she hated above all others, depart in joy, she looked contemptuously upon him, divining by a woman's instinct that mischief would befall him. Then, having no further mischief to do, no further treachery on earth, no further revenge to satisfy, she all at once succumbed to some unknown malady and died suddenly, without uttering a cry or exciting a single regret. But the King of Hungary, who had crossed Italy with a formidable army, now entered the kingdom from the side of Aquila. On his way he had everywhere received marks of interest and sympathy, and Alberto and Mertino del Tascala, lords of Verona, had given him three hundred horse to prove that all their goodwill was with him in his enterprise. The news of the arrival of the Hungarians threw the court into a state of confusion impossible to describe. They had hoped that the king would be stopped by the pope's legate, who had come to Foligno to forbid him in the name of the Holy Father and on pain of excommunication to proceed any farther without his consent. But Louis of Hungary replied to the pope's legate that, once master of Naples, he should consider himself a feudatory of the church, but till then he had no obligations except to God and his own conscience. Thus the avenging army fell like a thunderbolt upon the heart of the kingdom, before there was any thought of taking serious measures for defense. There was only one plan possible. The queen assembled the barons who were most strongly attached to her, made them swear homage and fidelity to Louis of Tarentum, whom she presented to them as her husband, and then leaving with many tears her most faithful subjects, she embarked secretly in the middle of the night on a ship of Provence and made for Marseilles. Louis of Tarentum, following the prompting of his adventure-loving character, left Naples at the head of three thousand horse and a considerable number of foot, and took up his post on the banks of the Voltorno, there to contest the enemy's passage, but the king of Hungary foresaw the stratagem, and while his adversary was waiting for him at Capua, he arrived at Beneventum, by the mountains of Alife and Marcone, and on the same day received Neapolitan envoys. They, in a magnificent display of eloquence, congratulated him on his entrance, offered the keys of the town, and swore obedience to him as being the legitimate successor of Charles of Anjou. The news of the surrender of Naples soon reached the queen's camp, and all the princes of the blood and the generals left Louis of Tarentum and took refuge in the capital. Resistance was impossible. Louis, accompanied by his counsellor, Nicholas Acciajuli, went to Naples on the same evening on which his relatives quitted the town to get away from the enemy. Every hope of safety was vanishing as the hours passed by. His brothers and cousins begged him to go at once so as not to draw down upon the town the king's vengeance. But unluckily there was no ship in the harbour that was ready to set sail. The terror of the princes was at its height. But Louis, trusting in his luck, started with the brave Acciajuli in an unseaworthy boat, and ordering four sailors to row with all their might in a few minutes disappeared, leaving his family in a great state of anxiety till they learned that he had reached Pisa, whither he had gone to join the queen in Provence. Charles of Durazzo and Robert of Tarentum, who were the eldest respectively of the two branches of the royal family, 
after hastily consulting, decided to soften the Hungarian monarch's wrath by a complete submission. Leaving their young brothers at Naples, they accordingly set off for Aversa, where the king was. Louis received them with every mark of friendship, and asked with much interest why their brothers were not with them. The princes replied that their young brothers had stayed at Naples to prepare a worthy reception for his majesty. Louis thanked them for their kind intentions, but begged them to invite the young princes now, saying that it would be infinitely more pleasant to enter Naples with all his family, and that he was most anxious to see his cousins. Charles and Robert, to please the king, sent equerries to bid their brothers come to Aversa, but Louis of Durazzo, the eldest of the boys, with many tears, begged the others not to obey, and sent a message that he was prevented by a violent headache from leaving Naples. So puerile an excuse could not fail to annoy Charles, and the same day he compelled the unfortunate boys to appear before the king, sending a formal order which admitted of no delay. Louis of Hungary embraced them warmly one after the other, asked them several questions in an affectionate way, kept them to supper, and only let them go quite late at night. When the Duke of Durazzo reached his room, Lelo of Aquila and the Count of Fondi slipped mysteriously to the side of his bed, and making sure that no one could hear, told him that the king in a council held that morning had decided to kill him and imprison the other princes. Charles heard them out, but incredulously, suspecting treachery, he dryly replied that he had too much confidence in his cousin's loyalty to believe such a black calumny. Lelo insisted, begging him in the name of his dearest friends to listen, but the duke was impatient and harshly ordered him to depart. The next day there was the same kindness on the king's part, the same affection shown to the children, the same invitation to supper. The banquet was magnificent, the room was brilliantly lighted and the reflections were dazzling, vessels of gold shone on the table, the intoxicating perfume of flowers filled the air, wine foamed in the goblets and flowed from the flagons and ruby streams. Conversation, excited and discursive, was heard on every side. All faces beamed with joy. Charles of Durazzo sat opposite the king at a separate table among his brothers. Little by little his look grew fixed, his brow pensive. He was fancying that André might have supped in this very hall on the eve of his tragic end, and he thought how all concerned in that death had either died in torment or were now languishing in prison. The queen in exile and a fugitive was begging pity from strangers. He alone was free. The thought made him tremble, but admiring his own cleverness in pursuing his infernal schemes and putting away his sad looks, he smiled again with an expression of indefinable pride. The madman at this moment was scoffing at the justice of God, but Lelo of Aquila, who was waiting at the table, bent down, whispering gloomily, "'Unhappy Duke, why did you refuse to believe me? Fly, while there is still yet time!' Charles, angered by the man's obstinacy, threatened that if he were such a fool as to say any more, he would repeat every word aloud. "'I have done my duty,' murmured Lelo bowing his head. Now it must happen as God wills. As he left off speaking, the king rose, and as the duke went up to take his leave, his face suddenly changed, and he cried in an awful voice, Traitor! At length you are in my hands, and you shall die as you deserve, but before you are handed over to the executioner, confess with your own lips your deeds of treachery towards our royal majesty. So shall we need no other witnesses to condemn you to a punishment proportioned to your crimes. Between our two selves, Duke of Durazzo, tell me first why, by your infamous maneuvering, you aided your uncle, the Cardinal of Perigord, to hinder the coronation of my brother, 
and so led him on, since he had no royal prerogative of his own, to his miserable end. Oh, make no attempt to deny it. Here is the letter, sealed with your seal. In secret you wrote it, but it accuses you in public. Then why, after bringing us hither to avenge our brother's death, of which you beyond all doubt were the cause, why did you suddenly turn to the Queen's party and march against our town of Aquila, daring to raise an army against our faithful subjects? You hoped, traitor, to make use of us as a footstool to mount the throne withal, as soon as you were free from every other rival. Then you would have awaited our departure to kill the viceroy we should have left in our place, and so seize the kingdom. But this time your foresight has been at fault. There is yet another crime worse than all the rest, a crime of high treason, which I shall remorselessly punish. You carried off the bride that our ancestor, King Robert, designed for me, as you knew by his will. Answer, wretch, what excuse can you make for the rape of the Princess Marie? Anger had so changed Louis's voice that the last words sounded like the roar of a wild beast. His eyes glittered with a feverish light, his lips were pale and trembling. Charles and his brothers fell upon their knees, frozen by mortal terror, and the unhappy duke twice tried to speak, but his teeth were chattering so violently that he could not articulate a single word. At last, casting his eyes about him and seeing his poor brothers innocent and ruined by his fault, he regained some sort of courage and said, "'My lord, you look upon me with a terrible countenance that makes me tremble. But on my knees I entreat you, have mercy on me if I have done wrong, for God is my witness that I did not call you to this kingdom with any criminal intention. I have always desired, and still desire, your supremacy in all the sincerity of my soul.' Some treacherous counsellors, I am certain, have contrived to draw down your hatred upon me. If it is true, as you say, that I went with an armed force to Aquila, I was compelled by Queen Joan, and I could not do otherwise. But as soon as I heard of your arrival at Fermo, I took my troops away again. I hope, for the love of Christ, I may obtain your mercy and pardon, by reason of my former services and constant loyalty. But as you see, you are now angry with me. I say no more waiting for your fury to pass over once again my lord have pity on us since we are in the hands of your majesty the king turned away his head and retired slowly confiding the prisoners to the care of stephen of Evoda and the count of zornick who guarded them during the night in a room adjoining the king's chamber the next day louis held another meeting of his council and ordered that charles should have his throat cut on the very spot where poor andre had been hanged he then sent the other princes of the blood loaded with chains to hungary where they were long kept prisoners charles quite thunderstruck by such an unexpected blow overwhelmed by the thought of his past crimes trembled like a coward face to face with death and seemed completely crushed bowed upon his knees his face half hidden in his hands from time to time convulsive sobs escaped him as he tried to fix the thoughts that chased each other through his mind like the shapes of a monstrous dream night was in his soul but every now and then light flashed across the darkness, and over the gloomy background of his despair passed gilded figures fleeing from him with smiles of mockery. In his ears buzzed voices from the other world. He saw a long procession of ghosts like the conspirators whom Nicholas of Milazzo had pointed out in the vaults of Castel Nuovo. But these phantoms each held his head in his hand, and shaking it by the hair bespattered him with drops of blood. Some brandished whips, some knives, each threatened Charles with his instrument of torture. 
Pursued by the nocturnal train, the hapless man opened his mouth for one mighty cry, but his breath was gone, and it died upon his lips. Then he beheld his mother stretching out her arms from afar, and he fancied that if he could but reach her he would be safe. But at each step the path grew more and more narrow. Pieces of his flesh were torn off by the approaching walls. At last, breathless, naked, and bleeding, he reached his goal, but his mother glided farther away, and it was all to begin over again. The phantoms pursued him, grinning and screaming in his ears, "'Cursed be he who slayeth his mother!' Charles was roused from these horrors by the cries of his brothers, who had come to embrace him for the last time before embarking. The duke, in a low voice, asked their pardon, and then fell back into his state of despair. The children were dragged away, begging to be allowed to share their brother's fate, and crying for death as an alleviation of their woes. At length they were separated, but the sound of their lamentations sounded long in the heart of the condemned man. After a few moments, two soldiers and two equerries came to tell the duke that his hour had come. Charles followed them, unresisting, to the fatal balcony where André had been hanged. He was there asked if he desired to confess, and when he said yes, they brought a monk from the same convent where the terrible scene had been enacted. He listened to the confession of all his sins, and granted him absolution. The duke at once rose and walked to the place where André had been thrown down for the cord to be put around his neck, and there, kneeling again, he asked his executioners, "'Friends,' in pity tell me is there any hope for my life and when they answered no charles exclaimed then carry out your instructions at these words one of the equerries plunged his sword into his breast and the other cut his head off with a knife and his corpse was thrown over the balcony into the garden where andre's body had lain for three days unburied end of chapter six recording by john van stan savannah georgia